And so I wanted to go slowly through the armor of God this time. And uh, we're going to start with the very first part of it, and that is truth. And, and we'll spend time on today and next week, spoiler alert, next week's going to be about truth as well. <clears throat> but before I get into the passage of Scripture that talks about the armor of God, thanks, Victoria, uh, I want to talk about this little byplay that happens in the middle of the Gospels or the end of the Gospel, actually. And usually this is part of an Easter sermon, but this is when Jesus squares off against Pontius Pilate. And, and I want to talk about that because Pontius Pilate says something very interesting, I think, in, in response to Jesus. Now, what happens in that confrontation, those of you who've studied it, uh, is a power shift. It goes in, Pontius Pilate's here, and Jesus is here. He's just some guy who brought in, he's going to beg him for his life. Pontius Pilate holds the power of life and death in his hand. And as they talk, you can watch the power shift. Because Pontius Pilate has just never met anybody like Jesus Christ. Remember, he was not brought before him because he was saying he was the Messiah. Rome couldn't possibly care less. He was brought there because the Jews had convinced the Roman Empire he was leading an insurrection against them. That they cared a lot about. And that's why he was brought. He was brought in as a political prisoner, which is why he would be crucified. Uh, they don't typically you know, crucify rabbis. It, it was unusual. So what, what he wants to see is him begging for his life because that makes it easy for him. Or he wants him to come in a little bit mad, you know, a little bit crazy. Either one, of the, that's what he usually sees in these kind of instances. But instead, he has somebody who's totally sane, fully aware of what's going on, and doesn't seem to really care what Rome's going to do to him. And Pontius Pilate doesn't know what to do with that. Plus the fact he unnerves him with some of the answers. And you can kind of see that if you look at the byplay. But very, towards the very end of the byplay, this happens. Um, Pontius Pilate says to him, so you are a king. See, he wants him to say he's a king because that way he is... He is uh, actually working against the, the authority of Julius Caesar, or, I'm sorry, Augustus Caesar. So, um, I can't remember if Augustus was on the throne by then. But anyway, the Caesar, whoever the Caesar was at the time. Uh, if, if he says he's king, then that means Caesar isn't, right? So he, that's, that's, it, that's a, a kind of something they could call treason for. So you are a king. And Jesus has just said, my kingdom's from another world. He says, so you are a king. And Jesus answers, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born. For this I have come into the world. That's a pretty bold statement right there. Jesus says, here's my mission statement. And then he answers it by saying something that I wouldn't have put it next to Jesus' mission statement. Here's why I came to the world, to testify to the truth. Because what was going on was not the truth. What was going on in Rome was a lot of lies, a lot of deceit. It was kind of how Rome was living, which sounds suspiciously like the time we live in. We live in a time when the truth really doesn't matter anymore, Right? You get 5,000 people on Twitter say something, and that becomes the truth for the day. It's like insane right now what's going on. We are being ruled by people who can't type more than 128 characters without spelling things wrong. I mean, I don't, I don't know when this became the truth factor in America, but that's where we are right now. And so he was, uh, Pontius Pilate was living in a world similar to that in, in, in that Rome kept changing its mind. You know, you talk about the Roman Empire, that's a big thing. It was like an organ that kept changing its mind. So for this I've been born, for this I've come, to testify the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate says, what is truth? That's an interesting statement, right? Here's the guy who's supposed to be deciding what happens to him. He's like the judge, and the judge just said, I don't know what truth is. I don't think I'd know truth if it stepped on me. I don't know what truth is. What is truth? But for Pontius Pilate, there was no truth. Right, there's a right way, there's a wrong way, there's a Roman way. And he had tried to figure out what the Roman way was. It depended on who was in power. He was always trying to look over his shoulder. If he made a wrong decision, they could call him back to Rome to face charges. And they did it all the time. In fact, that will happen to Pontius Pilate years from here. 
He actually gets called back to Rome for the way he handles uh, an uprising in Samaria brutally because he hates Jews, you can tell. Uh, and he gets called back to Rome. And the only reason that he doesn't get crucified himself in Rome is Caesar switches. The, 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 the change of the Caesars happens in the middle of his trip back. And so then he kind of disappears from history. We don't know what happens to him. But he's always living in fear of making the wrong decision and having Rome call, call for his head. And so he's always trying to figure this out. And here, too, this is a hot potato. He doesn't want to let somebody go who's going to cause an insurrection to happen. And they did happen. Jews did not go quietly. They fought Rome. And so that did happen. But on the other hand, he doesn't necessarily want to inflame the people against him, killing an innocent man. He doesn't really know what to do. I don't know what is truth. What is truth? He doesn't know. And I think there's some part of us that have the same question today. Because we're told what the truth of the day is. We're told what we should believe. And there's a lot of angry people uh, trying to convince us that they're right. And if you disagree with them, it's, just, it's not like, well, you disagree with me. It's, no, you're evil and, and you must be destroyed if you disagree with me. I've never seen America quite so polarized. And there's some part of us at some point that realizes that can't be right. I mean, I don't know necessarily what the truth is, but this can't be right. There has to be, you have this moment, you know, like that we see uh, the more, what I call the Morpheus moment. You know you can't explain, but you feel it. You felt it your entire life that there's something wrong with the world. You don't know what it is, but it's there, like a splinter in your mind. This is a little splinter that you can't quite get rid of. Something's wrong somewhere. You feel that? Something's wrong. Something just has to be wrong because somehow we know what the truth should be. Kind of instinctively, we know it. And we know what's going on right now is not truth. They can scream at us all they want. They can yell at us. They can threaten to boycott us on Twitter. But we know that can't be truth. That must not be truth. And what's happened is people who know the truth stop standing up for the truth because we don't know what's true anymore. It's like, I don't know, the world's gone mad. I don't know what to do. And what Jesus said is he came into a world very much like ours and said, I came to speak for the truth. Somebody needs to stand up and speak for the truth. So I don't think it is at all an accident that when Paul says, look, you're in a spiritual war, folks, and you need to put on the, the armor of God because you're not going to survive. And let me tell you how you put it on. You start with truth. Because that's how he starts. I'm going to read this whole thing in its entirety this time. We're going to go through the armor of God for a few weeks. I'm probably not going to read it every time. But let me read it to its entirety just so we have it out there. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. And remember, anytime scripture starts repeating itself, it's, it's repeated for emphasis. It's like them drawing a line under it. The whole armor of God, not just part of it, all of it, that you may be able to withstand the evil day and having done all that, stand. And now he's going to go through the armor. So therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and above all, taking the shield of faith which you, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So that's the armor. That's what we're going to be walking through. Now, I have been taught this since I was this tall because I'm a preacher's kid. I went to all the vaca vacation Bible schools and Sunday school. I had the cutouts. I had posters in my room showing the armor of God. And every time I had ever seen any kind of armor of God poster or something, they always call it the belt of truth. But that's actually not what Paul says here. He doesn't describe it as a belt of truth. 
He actually says, gird your loins. So if nothing else, it's the girdle of truth. And the reason why this does not get translated that way is today we all have an image of girdles, don't we? And it's nothing you would want to put on as a warrior. You know, it's like, Paul, we need to have a talk if we're talking about the girdle of of truth here. I'm not so sure I want to go in there. But if you've been involved in any kind of a contact sport, you've actually worn girdles. They actually call them girdles. Uh, Hockey has them, football has them, boxing has them. You know, they actually call them girdles. But in the case of the Roman girdle, this is a very specific thing. Now, this is a picture of uh, what they call uh, historic armor, but it's actually kind of a costume. Because this would have had a belt attached, very thick, that wrapped around more than once. It actually wrapped around and under because it protected the entire part down there. Now, guys, we know why we want to protect that part down there. But there's another reason why the protection is very important there. Because this is the power center of the human body, at least as a fighting machine is concerned. And if you have any kind of martial arts experience or done any kind of sword fighting, I just do fencing, if you've done boxing, karate, whatever, they'll always tell you that the power comes from the hips. If you're going to throw a punch, you twist those hips and you put the full body weight into it. Otherwise, you're just annoying them. If you really want to knock the guy down, you've got to, you've got to swing from the hips. And they'll tell you, they teach you that in about every kind of contact sport I've ever seen. In sword fighting, too, it's all about <coughs> the power of the hips. And that's where you get the lunge and that's where you get the strike. So that's very, very important. So this is to protect that very, very, the power center of the human body. But the reason Paul starts with this, and um, I guess I can't say the reason because Paul might have many reasons, but one of the reasons why he starts with this is this is the centerpiece of the entire armor. Now, if you've ever seen a poster of the armor of God and they show you the Knight Templar, throw those posters away, that's not what Paul's talking about. Paul's image of the warrior is the Roman legionnaire. That's his image because that was the fighting force of the day. One of the greatest warriors of all time in, in, when fought in, in, in battle like that, that's how they would take over the world, the Roman legion. And so he's picturing the Roman legion's armor, and this piece, this girdle, is actually the center of everything. Everything connects into it and holds everything down. The, the chest plate that they would wear would tie into, would clip into that, that girdle there, the belt. They actually would, of course, have a place on there to put the sword. They also have a little clip over here to put this shield they call the buckler, which is a small shield that they carried with them at all times. That big shield that you see them turtle with, that was usually on carts, and they bring them out if they needed them. But they would carry the buckler at all times. That's a little tiny shield. And they had a little place that would hook on there too. So everything kind of attached into that. And then, you know, other pieces attached that to the pieces they attach. So everything, including the shoes and the, and the greaves that they wore, all ended up being attached to something. Something had to hold everything together. And if you don't have it holding everything together, then you don't have really any armor. It's going to fall off in the middle of a fight. So you didn't have to be effeminate to be wearing a girdle in those days. Everybody wore them because you had to in order to keep your armor on. You see these people walking around with pants halfway down there? Yeah, that would never work in those days because your armor would fall off. So that would never happen. Nobody ever had their pants falling down as they walked around. So anyway, but what Paul's saying is you're going to start here because this is where the Roman soldier started his armor putting on. And if he, actually, the officers would have people help them, but they would start there, and then things would get added to it. The truth, Paul was saying, is the center of everything. Now, there's two purposes of this, and we're going to get to one today. The second purpose of it is it's to protect you, like I said, it's to protect your power source. And the belt of truth, since it is God's armor, is protecting you in two ways. It's to keep falsehood out, and it's also to remove <coughs> falsehood from within. We're going to talk about that next week. I want to talk about the center of truth in that everything connects into it. 
And if you don't have truth in your life, I mean, really solid truth that you can build upon, the rest of the armor is not going to work. And you can forget your shield of faith. You can forget your helmet of salvation. If you don't have truth, you can't get to there. The truth has to be the center of everything. And I know that as Christians, we always like, like put faith at the beginning of everything. <coughs> but what Paul's saying is, no, it starts with truth. Now, I'm going to give you now something. You know, Paul, in his letters, sometimes he writes and he'll say, uh, not I say this, but the Lord. And sometimes he says, not the Lord says this, but I. He's very careful to tell you, this is my opinion. He sometimes will tell you, uh, Paul's opinion he puts it there. So this is one of those moments that not the Lord says this, but I. I don't have a scripture that I can point to that says, aha, this is true. But this has been my observation. This is what I've come to as life as a Christian and my life as a pastor with everything we've been through. Some of you have been here for a long time to kind of journey together. I believe that there is a progression in the Christian life. And I believe you're supposed to have a progression in the Christian life. And I think a lot of reasons why we don't get to the next level is because we don't grow. And I believe that what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to move from faith to trust to knowledge. I can kind of show some scriptures that kind of back that up, but I don't have one definitive scripture that I can show you. But here's here's what I mean. Faith is a gift. We know that because faith is a gift of the Spirit. Faith is a gift. God gives us faith, right? That's a gift from Him in order to take the next step with Him. He does this. It's a miraculous thing sometimes. Sometimes it's just He puts it in your heart. Uh, and you have faith. Sometimes some of you have been Christians for a while. You know, you prayed for something and it came true and you just knew it was going to come true. God actually gave you the faith to believe that. It was just like he just gave it to you. It's a faith. It's a gift. He gives you faith, but he doesn't want us to stay on faith. He doesn't want us to live on miracles. We're not supposed to live looking around for signs and wonders. We're supposed to move from faith to trust. Trust is a little bit different. In our definition, in our world, the definition of faith is belief in something that cannot be seen and cannot be proven. That's faith. Trust is belief in someone or something based on history, historical evidence. When I first met Victoria and I was waiting, you know, to get through all the process with the INS to get her here finally, uh, if somebody comes and said, I think she's cheating on you, I would say, I don't believe that. I, I had faith not to believe that. That's why I don't, I don't believe it. I, I just don't. That was faith. It wasn't trust. She, she wasn't here yet. You know, we knew each other a little bit, but we didn't know each other deeply. That was just faith. But 10 years later, if someone come to me and said, after she's been here, we've been married for 10 years, your wife's cheating on you. I said, I, I just can't believe that. You know, I trust her. I trust her that that wouldn't happen. Now, 17 years later, the last six years spent living 24-7, 365, basically. If someone came up and tried to tell me, well, I think your wife's cheating, I'd just laugh. When? I don't know how she would. We're together all the time, you know? That'd be a trick. I don't know. So, I mean, it's just... But that's knowledge, right? It was like, I wouldn't even consider that for a second. Someone comes, no, you're, you're nuts. I don't know, you, Victoria Grice. You sure you mean Grice? You must be you're talking about another Victoria. It can't be this wife. She's with me all the time. How would she cheat on me? It's just crazy, right? Plus, I, come, I have total knowledge and trust had turned into knowledge. This is just part now of my life. There are some things that you know in your life. It's true. And, and if, you, if you've spent any time around things, you've learned things. Like this here. This was built out of oak. Now, I know oak is a strong wood. I could stand on this, and it would not give way because I also know the guy who built it. I trust him. He's very good. And I know this wood will not give way because I know how oak wood works. It's knowledge to me. If, if I saw this and, and we're flooding and I had to stand up on something, I would stand up on this, and it would never enter my mind that it might crumble under my feet because I know what oak wood is. It's solid. It's good. 
I can trust it. It's knowledge that I have, right? It's not faith. I'm not stepping out on faith here. I know what it is. And I believe that God wants us to move from faith, which is a gift He gives you, into a point where you really, you know, I trust it because I've seen God do this so many times. I just have this trust. It's a different level than faith. And then eventually to the final part, which is knowledge. In fact, in Philippians, Paul says this. He says, here's what I'm looking for. I want to be found in Him. That's what I, I want to be found in Jesus. That's what he says, not having my own righteousness. I don't want that which comes from the law. That I, that's nothing. That doesn't. That's meaningless. That used to mean a lot to Paul, but no longer does it. I want that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. But watch why that I may know Him. He wants to move, I believe, from faith to knowledge. Now, here's the one thing I, I need to emphasize. This isn't like a phase of Christianity. You know, like you're in your faith phase, you're in your trust phase, you're in your knowledge. This is like every attribute of God that he reveals to you, and there's a lot of them, you go through this whole cycle again on. Because I can have total knowledge in God in that one area and trust in another one, and another one I'm still reaching for faith, right? Because God is immense, and he has all these attributes, and he's trying to teach you more about himself, and he's pulling you along and teaching you in this. But faith is a manifestation of what you believe, Truth is a manifestation of what you know. And I believe that what Paul is saying here about the belt of truth is you need to know it. There needs to be some solid thing that holds everything else together that no matter what happens in your life, well, I can't doubt that. That'd be like doubting gravity, right? I just cannot. There's just no inkling of doubt that can even happen there. If you look at what happens with the Israelites when they're in Egypt, right? He comes and he wants to deliver them from bondage. What's he do? Signs and wonders, we celebrated Passover together, the 10 plagues, right? That's not all he did. He did a lot of them. But why does he do that? Because he wants them to have the faith to follow him into the wilderness. He's got to do that because why else would you follow Moses? We have to know he's from God. They give him these, these signs, these wonders. Oh, I have faith in that. That God's powerful. He's more powerful than Pharaoh. He just showed me. I can follow him. They go out into the wilderness. So it's the first thing God does. Well, I need to feed you. I'm going to use manna. Okay, why? Why did God choose manna? Now, manna, if you remember, shows up every morning. And by the, word, by the way, the, the word manna literally means, what is it? Because the Israelites walked out and went, what is it? Manna. That's why they called it that. That's the name of this thing. And it's just food from heaven is what it is. Because you could do anything with this thing. You could chop it up. You could boil it. You could fry it. You, know? you could have like a chop challenge with four ingredients, all manna, and you do different things with. You know? it, was just, it was this amazing stuff. But it was only good for the, that day. If you try to hoard it for next day, it would, worms would get, eat it. It was disgusting the next day you open it up, right? So every day you had to go out and get it, except the Sabbath, which for them was Friday. Then they could make a double portion to last for Sunday. And he does this every day through the entire journey through the wilderness, which lasts, I don't, know, I don't really know how long, weeks, 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 months. Every day he does that. Why? He wants them to trust him in a very important place called Jehovah Jireh. Jehovah Jireh is a good name of God that means Jehovah provides. He wants to teach them to trust him. We're going to move from faith that we got you into the wilderness with. We're going to give you trust manna. It's there every day. He didn't have to do that. Do you know their sandals never wore out? The, the entire time they're wilderness, their sandals never wore 40 years. That's a sandal that lasts, boy. That's good. You know, Birkenstock never lasts that long. Promise you. So he, he, he did that with his sandals. Why? Because we couldn't be giving them sandals every couple weeks. We had, to, we had to make them last. He could have done that with food. He's God. You've seen what he can do with fish and two, two, two fishes and five loaves of bread. He could have done a miracle every day to feed them, but he didn't. He took a very routine thing every day to feed them so he could teach them 
to trust him. A lot of us stay in that part of our lives because we never learn that Jehovah provides. We never get to the point we trust him. We treat every manna experience like it's a miracle. He says, I'm trying to get you to trust me so we can move on to the next step because the next step is taking the promised land. Well, you better know God can take care of you when you're going to face what you're going to face in your promised land. You have to, right? And so I believe that's what happened, and that's what goes on in that. So um, we're supposed to move into this knowledge, and I believe that becomes a centerpiece of everything. So the question then becomes, what do you know about God? Now, you're here, so I guess I could say, what have you learned about God here? But I don't think you learn about God here. You get ideas and you get things that, you know, kind of touch your heart, and God teaches you as you leave here. That's, what, that's what's supposed to happen. I don't teach you. God teaches you. And the Holy Spirit will keep working in your life, right? And so God will teach you things about Himself, not here, out there in your life. And the question is, what have you learned? He's always trying to teach you things. I promise you that. What have you learned? What could you say, I have gone from faith to trusted knowledge in my life. I know this is true. No matter what happens, the world could end tomorrow, but I would still know this is true about God because that is your belt. That's the centerpiece of your belt of truth. And if you don't have that, then you don't have a belt. And you're in trouble because that means you don't have armor. That's what he's saying. So now I'm going to do something that I don't like to do. And as much as I don't like to do it, Victoria doesn't like me doing it more. Um, this is, uh, I'm, I'm going to read to you, and it just occurred to me, I closed this file, so give me a moment. Uh, and the, the reason I'm going, I'm going to read to you is because I wrote a book, I started to write a book uh, many years ago, and uh, it was started after, let me see here, which one of these is the right one? We'll just pick this one and call it right. Um, what happened, what happened was I, I preached this sermon. Those of you who are here the very first week, I don't know. Was anybody here the first week? For this? I don't think so. I've been my life. Okay. So none of you heard this sermon. <laughs> Actually, I, I repeated it. I repeated it on the, on, the, on the first anniversary. I preached this sermon twice called The Jesus Razor. And it's basically a testimony about how Spear Chapel came to be and uh, about how God was working my life to make it happen. So it's kind of testimonial. It was also um, the church's beginning, and spoiler alert, when we get a new building, that'll be the first sermon. Um, but anyway, the, so I thought that'd be kind of cool to me put all that down, like a testimony. And so I wrote this small book called The Jesus Razor, where I put more detail in it than I could get into in the sermon. Uh, and um, someday I hope to actually kind of get that finished up and published or something. But right now, I have written some really key moments of my life down in a way that I'm satisfied is the best way I can tell it. So rather than me trying to reproduce that for you, I thought I'll, just, I'll just read it because I think this is the best I can do. Anyway, so but this is the truth that I live with. This is the beginning of the truth for me. It actually starts at the beginning of my life, but it's the truth that I know this and this will never be shaken because I will die if this is shaken. This is, this is the, the truth. So let me, um, let me share this with you. Uh, give me a little bit of grace here because this takes a little time. I should have never been born. That's what my mother has told me for as long as I can remember, but probably not in the way you think. It wasn't said with regret. It was said with wonder. I not only shouldn't have been born, I shouldn't have been conceived in the first place. Now, as an aside, let me just say that I know when a Christian starts out by talking about miraculous conceptions, he's walking a fine line, but that's not where this is headed. My conception was not immaculate. It was simply improbable. 
I was conceived at a time of the month when conception is believed to be highly unlikely, if not impossible. The fact that I know that is a little weird. The fact that I know that because I heard my mother talking about it is weirder still. Welcome to my world. The first time I remember hearing my mother discussing this was when I overheard telling somebody about it on the phone. I was maybe seven years old, and that really seems odd, but you have to understand two things. First of all, my mother was a nurse, and when it came to medical facts, she had no filter at all. Secondly, this is a detail in a story about a real miracle in her life, and she would happily tell it to whoever wanted to hear it. Now, I'll say this from the story of my conception, birth, and early life. The details never changed. The story I overheard her tell on the phone that day is pretty much the same story I heard her tell once when she was asked to give her testimony in church. So since I grew up with this story as a huge part of my life, let me retell it now. You cannot understand how I got here without knowing how it all started. My parents had a rocky relationship throughout their marriage. Some, better, some years were better than others, but apparently in the year of 1960, they were only one of the worst patches ever. I say that because my mother can name the day I was conceived. She knows that because they only had marital relations once in a three-month period. Although my parents were ardent believers in birth control, on the day I was conceived, they didn't use any because my mother was convinced they couldn't need it. It was the tail end of her period, so she thought they were safe. They took a chance and ended up pregnant. As I said, improbable conception. That's me. The reason this detail is important is that a couple months later, my mother becomes quite ill. Her initial test shows something serious is going on, and her doctors want to rule out ovarian cancer. He orders a series of tests to be done. Naturally, there's a stack of forms, and on the top of each form is, is there any chance you might be pregnant? My mother diligently checks no on every form. In her mind, there is absolutely no possibility of pregnancy. So they run the whole gamut of tests, PET scans, lower GI scans, the works, many of which involve radioactivity and are considered, and considered highly dangerous to a fetus. It isn't until the tests come back they realize what they've done. Now, this is 1960. It's 13 years before the famous court case of Roe versus Wade. Abortion was not illegal, but it was rare. But one way you could get an abortion is if the doctor feels the mother's life is in danger. Now, there were a bunch of doctors who believed that in this case. The lead physician sat my mother down, informed her she was pregnant, and then asked her to sign the consent form so they could, quote, do the procedure, which is to say, abort the baby. My mother refused. Because she was a nurse in the hospital and was known to the doctor, he went an extra step further. He brought up in the head physician from Children's Hospital as a consulting physician. The doctor looked at the tests and sat down to talk some sense into my mother. In his professional opinion, there was a very small chance she would carry the baby to term. Chances were she would eventually have a miscarriage. And even if she did somehow get to deliver the baby, there was absolutely no way the baby would be normal. Now, the debate around the question of whether I'm in fact normal does rage, but his medical opinion was I would probably be miscarriage or stillborn, but if somehow I beat those odds, I was sure to have other problems. His guess was that the radioactive test would mess with my thyroid and I would probably be a dwarf. This is another wonderful detail of the story because I'm the only person in my immediate family who's over six feet tall. He was concerned that her insistence on carrying a child that could not survive anyway was needlessly putting her life in danger. The results of the test had shown there were irregularities they wanted to operate. That's about as open and shut case as you can get from mother's life in danger. But my mother would not back down. Now, it would be a pleasant thought to say that my mom stood her ground because of her deep religious convictions, but the fact is she'd only been a Christian for a very short time. 
What makes this remarkable to me is that she'd been married to my mother, my, my father, by this time for several years. In fact, they already had two children together, and this was when my father was an ordained Presbyterian minister, which means that, doing the math, my father courted, married, and had children with a woman who was not a Christian. Sometimes the heart wants what the heart wants, I guess. Eventually, my mother would fully embrace Christianity, but at the time of my birth, she was a brand new Christian, still trying to figure out what she believed. You might think that being married to a great preacher would have influenced her, but actually it was a simple life of a devout woman she had met, not the brilliant sermons of her husband, that was the biggest Christian influence in her life. That woman's name was Mercer Curry, and my mother met her through a woman's group in one of the churches in the area. Mrs. Curry had the most beautiful spirit of anyone I've ever met. Her eyes would shine with God's love. It was impossible to meet her and not love her because she was such a great reflection of her Savior's love. She became much more than a Christian mentor to my mother. She became the mom she never had. But Mrs. Curry's discipleship of my mother had just begun when my mom had to face down a room full of doctors urging her to abort her unborn child. But maybe that was an advantage because sometimes it's the people who are newer in their faith that have such a clear vision of what God wants for them. Against doctor's orders, she carried the baby to full term, and much to the bafflement of the experts, I was born a healthy and mostly normal, they had to admit, baby boy on December 13th of 1960. Now, that's pretty cool, but the legend of God's hand in my life is just getting started because 13 months later, I was back in that hospital fighting for my life. I had a bad case of pneumonia. It had filled both of my lungs, and I was barely able to breathe. Again, this was 1960. They didn't have as many choices for treatment they were giving me penicillin shots every hour on the hour, and I was in an oxygen tent. My mother was in a constant bedside vigil. She was trained for this, being a nurse and all, but there is nothing that can get anyone ready for seeing their baby die before their eyes. And make no doubt about it, I was dying. They couldn't find the source of infection. I wasn't responding to treatment. My lungs just kept filling with fluids while air became harder and harder to find. My skin had turned a bluish tint. No one had to be an expert to know. I was not going to last long like this. But my mom had experts coming by every day. And since she was a nurse, they gave it to her straight. Prognosis, not good. Her baby was not going to make it. She was trying to pray, something she was learning to do and not very practiced at yet. Mrs. Curry, who couldn't drive, would talk to her for hours on the phone. She prayed with her constantly. She would listen to her cry. But there was nothing she could do. There was nothing anyone could do. None of it seemed to matter. I was dying. One evening with my mom alone in the room, the doctor on call came by making his final rounds for the night. My mom saw him check the charts and asked, what do you think? Is there any chance at all? The doctor paused for a long time before answering and finally he said, to tell you the truth, Betty, no. You need to say goodbye to your baby because to be honest, I don't expect to find him here in the morning when I come by to start my next shift. He left her with that to mull over, <clears throat> and my mother resumed her tearful vigil while she kept calling out to a God she barely knew. But she knew somehow could fix this, and he was the only one who could. Medical science had just officially clocked out. Through the tears, through the prayers, through the awful silence, a thought began growing in my mother's mind. It was four simple words, give him to me. She didn't know what the voice of God sounded like. This was more of a thought than an answer to prayer. But the more she concentrated on that thought, the stronger it grew, give him to me. My mother started to feel it was coming from God. The problem was she didn't know what it meant. 
She called Mrs. Curry, told her the strange idea that was impressed upon her. What did she think? Could this be God telling her to do something important? There was a long pause. Mrs. Curry was praying, and then she said, Betty, I think that is God, and I think you'd better do it. What does that mean? It means you need to hand them over to Almighty God, withdraw all rights, place them on the altar like Abraham placed Isaac. Say he's all yours. Do whatever you want. My mother listened. Part of her was scared out of her mind at the thought, but part of her was excited because this was new. It was something she could do besides just sitting there and watching me die. Her hand had slipped under the fabric of the oxygen tent. She was letting me grip her little finger. She said every now and then she would feel the slightest of a squeeze from my tiny hand, but mostly she couldn't feel me do anything because I was too weak from just trying to breathe. But she said to Mrs. Curry, that means God's going to heal him, right? Another long pause, this time not because Mrs. Curry was praying, but she was trying to figure out how to frame her answer. No, she said finally, it does not. It means you're giving him to the Lord without knowing what he's going to do. But that's where faith comes in. My mother got petulant. That can't be right. If I give him to God, he has to heal him. He just has to. Mrs. Curry's voice came back instantly, and there was steel in it this time. Honey, he's God, and he doesn't have to do anything. More silence, more crying. Finally, my mom said, okay, I'm going to try to do this. Pray for me. And she hung up. The next several minutes would drag by in slow agony as a young Christian tried to grow up very quickly. She tried very hard to do what Mrs. Curry had instructed, but it was too hard. She would pray the prayer as simply as she could, Lord, he's yours, and try to move her hand back out from under the oxygen tent, but then I would cough or gag on mucus, and she would reach back under and take my hand. I'm here. Mommy's here. This went on for an eternity. But if you think God left her alone to deal with this in that darkness, you don't know God. Because suddenly the door opened and a man walked in that my mother didn't recognize. His name was Bill Irie. He was a large man with big hands and a booming laugh that could crack plaster on walls. And he was probably the last man you would think of sending into a dark, silent room where a death vigil was being held. But God sees things differently. Betty Grice, he asked. He probably tried to make his voice quiet, but that was like putting a silencer on a howitzer. My mother stared at him, trying to place him. He was surely no doctor. I'm Bill Irie, he said. I know Kenny from seminary. And to this day, by the way, he's the only person I've ever heard refer to my father as Kenny. I ran to him earlier when I was on, came on to do visitations. I told him I'd look in on you. He said, your boy's really sick. My mom's tearful nod was all she could manage. Bill Irie came closer, pulled up a chair. Can I pray with you? Another tearful nod. He put one hand on my crib slash bed and one hand on my mother's shoulder. And then he paused and asked the strangest question. Is there anything specific you want me to pray for? With her heart pounding in her chest, she told him about the prayer she was trying to pray but couldn't find the faith to. If he was surprised to hear what she wanted him to pray, he didn't show it. He just nodded and said, okay, and then he started to pray. Now, in those days, pastors prayed differently than now. My dad had what I called the preacher's voice. They all had it. There were no whispers when the Presbyterian preacher started to pray. With a sure and strong voice, he started to dedicate me to the Lord, telling God that all rights to me and my life were being placed at the altar before him, and I was now in the total care of heaven. My mother was agreeing with the prayer, thankful that she could simply say, yes, Lord, and not have to come up with the words to say for her own. And then the prayer shifted. The words started coming faster, and they felt different. My mom says she'd been lost in her own torment and didn't know exactly when it happened, but something caught her attention. Reverend Irie had suddenly become amazingly eloquent, the prayer sounded more like poetry, 
it would be some time later that my mother would realize he had started praying scripture over my still, almost lifeless body. Psalm 91. Prayed in King James English like a good Presbyterian should. He dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in Him will I trust. Surely He shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He shall cover thee with His feathers and under His wings thou shalt trust. His truth shall be thy shield and thy buckler. Thou shalt not be afraid for the terror by night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor for the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand shall fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. Somehow, the prayer became a psalm, and then the psalm became a prophecy because it ends with, because he set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him on high because he's known my name. He shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and with long life will I satisfy him and I will show him my salvation. When it was over, the room was again silent, but this silence was different. Before the room was silent with death's inexorable approach, now it was silent because God himself had spoken and there was nothing left to say. And with that, the loud apostle left the room. And my mother was left to continue the vigil, this time, though, with a hope that did seem possible before. By morning, I wasn't dead. I was better. By noon, they'd taken the oxygen tent off. I was awake. The fever was gone. The lungs were clearing. And my skin was pink now instead of blue. Nothing made sense to the medical professionals. But knowing doctors, I am sure they, create, they credited my sudden recovery to their treatment plan finally kicking in. But my mother knew better. She had been there when medical science gave up, and she was there when God stepped in, and she knew the difference. She knew what happened. And this has become the very real part of my story. As early as I can remember, I was recall being told this story of God stepping in. So getting back to the sermon, here's what I know, and I know full well. I know that God loves me. That's become the truth of my life. You can convince me of anything in the world, you know? You probably could. If you really, you hit me at the right time when the wor world's kind of spinning around me, we all have these moments of darkness. I could, I could be convinced that maybe Spirit Chapel was a mistake. Maybe I shouldn't be a preacher. Maybe, you know, some of these things that I've, may, maybe. You could maybe push me off of many things I believe, but you'll never get this one from me. I know He loves me. I know there's a God, and I know He loves me. And the world goes crazy, that's still something I can fall back to. I don't often fall all the way back to this bedrock, but I know it's there. I know God loves me. And I also believe He loves you. I don't know that, but I believe He does. I trust He loves some of you who told me your testament. I trust that, but I know He loves me. And this becomes the center of my belt, the thing that everything else gets built up on. Well, I know this much. There's a God, and He loves me. And I believe He reaches out and tells everybody that. I believe everybody has a story like this one. Maybe it didn't involve a hospital and doctors and death. But you have a story that you could tell that against all odds, somehow God broke through and said, I love you. Everybody has that story. And if you don't have it yet, congratulations, today is your day. Because you could have been anywhere but here. I believe God is constantly reaching out with that one message. I love you. I really do. I want you to be with me. That message becomes the bedrock of faith. Everything builds up from there. If you don't understand there is a God and He loves you, you won't understand anything. 
but you move on from there because God shows you other truths, other things that happen in your life where God moves in a way that you know is God. The problem is sometimes we're talked out of it later by the enemy or by others. You start thinking, well, maybe that wasn't God. Maybe I didn't hear him. Maybe I didn't feel him. Maybe that wasn't God. Maybe that was coincidence. Maybe it wasn't God. So my question is, do you conceal God's truth? Because here's, here's the thing. When, when God moves in your way to build, to build this in you, to build this faith and trust and knowledge in him, he's doing it for a purpose. He's giving it to you so you have it. But if we conceal it, if we don't admit that's God, if we try to take credit ourselves or we try to give credit to someone else, maybe a preacher, maybe a parent, maybe a relative, maybe a boss, maybe something that I did, if we try to take God's glory away from him, then we've taken away this opportunity to develop more truth to put in your belt. Let me put it this way. If God doesn't get the praise, you don't get the faith. You only get to build the faith if God gets the praise. And you should be like loaded and ready with these. You know, I pity the fool tries to tell me God doesn't love me. I got a story to tell you. And I got more than that. That was a long time ago. I've had more and more recent. God's always showing you this, right? And you should be ready with it. God needs to get the glory so you can have the faith and the faith can develop into trust and it becomes something that you just know. Jesus says this. He says, look, no one has a little lamp, covers it with a vessel or puts it under a bed. No, you set it on a lamp stand. You want everybody to see that. It's amazing. Why wouldn't you want them to see this great light? So that those who enter may see the light. Those who enter your life, are they seeing the light? Or have you done a really good job of concealing it? Because you don't want to have to stand up for the truth. Nothing in secret will not be revealed, nor anything that is hidden will not be known and come to light. So it's all going to come out. Therefore, take heed how you hear. For whoever has, to him will more be given. To whoever does not, even that which he seems to have will be taken from him. This is a spiritual principle. He gives you something, and if you're not going to do anything with it, he'll stop giving you things. Why would he keep throwing stuff on top of you? That just makes you more guilty for not doing things with him. Out of love, he'll stop giving you things. You want to have a life that keeps moving forward, you declare God. You say, this is God's grace. This is what he did. Let me tell you about what God's done in my life this week. It's amazing. He's always reaching out to us. He's always telling us. And once you have this belt and it gets bigger and bigger, the devil has nothing he can come against you with. That's when you start adding the other things to it. One more scripture in Psalm. I will thank the Lord at all times. My lips will always praise him. I will find my glory in knowing the Lord. This is all I care about, he says. This is the future king speaking. I don't care about that, he says. I don't need any glory for being a king. I don't need any glory for killing Goliath. I don't need any glory for being a, 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 a shepherd. I, here's what I want. I want you to look at me and say, that man knows God. That's my glory. That's what I want. I meant that guy knows God. That's what David says. Future king is saying that. I will find my glory in knowing the Lord. That's what I'm after. Let those who are hurting hear me and be joyful because that builds other people up. Join me in giving glory to the Lord. Let us honor him together. What truth do you know about God? Would you all please pray with me?